out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's the turn of the singer Anne-Marie, one-time member of the Field Mice and also has sung on Trembling Blue Stars, Northern Picture Library and is now currently singing on an album which is um, titled, well, the, the band is Lightning in a Twilight Hour. This is Bobby Ratton's um, kind of project, I do believe. They brought out several albums, but there's a new one, 2022, titled Overwintering, that has just been out for a few months. So I thought, let's get an interview with Anne. And Marie, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, which is in slightly two parts for various reasons, but we won't go into that. It's a Zoom thing. And um, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very interesting subject that was um, basically the project of this band, Lightning in a Twilight Hour and uh, the new album, and just wanted a bit more information. Anyway, Anne's going to tell us all about it and much more. Take it away. I mean, Bobby, of course, as always, whether it, whether it's Field Mice, Trembling Blue Stars, Northern Picture Library, or Lightning in the Twilight Hour, he is the you know the main guy. He's the the, the songwriter. Um, he writes all the lyrics and 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 comes up with all the ideas for the songs, and um, and then gets different people to sing or play on each track, depending on what he can hear happening. Yes. You know, so obviously he's got all this stuff going on in his head and um, and he can just sort of like, you know, he's got quite a few friends to pick on to say like, oh, you know, would you like to play bass on this bit? Or, you know, Michael is is always involved. So right. Michael's been, Michael plays bass throughout, Beth sings on it. And I was really fortunate to sing on quite a lot of this album, actually. So um, absolutely thrilled because it's my favourite thing on the planet to go into the studio. I just yes. So that was quite you know, nice. I'll never ever I'll never play live, but I just love going into the studio and working with Ian Cat as well, you know, and and just I've, and I think I felt really I felt really relaxed this time, really sort of liberated, I suppose. I don't know whether it's not, you know, whether it's because of all the stuff that we've been through over the last few years. Um although I mean the thing was it was recorded before lockdown. Right. But obviously I'd had the year in 2019 when I'd been really quite unwell and I'd had the chemotherapy and radiotherapy and everything so it came on the on the back of that and I went into the studio and a lot of the songs Bobby had vague ideas for but he hadn't actually planned them out like written them out he had a a sense of what he wanted a sense of what had influenced it he had the lyrics and the bare bones of the chords and that sort of thing but we actually just sort of created it there and then. And it was just magical. It was so, so wonderful to do. And I did feel, I felt like I could just experiment and I could just let go in a way that I haven't haven't been able to do before because I've been too self-conscious, really. Yes. But but this was just, there was something really magical about, about this, this album for me. And I don't want it to sound narcissistic, you know, uh, because... Obviously, you know, I'm talking about like our own stuff, if you like. But I, because I feel like I'm a guest singer and Bobby is the, the main man, um, I feel like I can praise it. 
you know, because yes. I'm just like a <laughs> tiny part of it. This is not like, hey, listen to my new record. My new record's great. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But 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 I absolutely love the songs that he came up with and the, the fragments of ideas that built into something really, for me, really special. Um, so, yes. I, yeah, so that's the album. So was a lot of the, the lyrical content, was he sort of picking up not only his own sort of processes and journeys, but also other people? Because because I just wondered if it was a little bit like with your sort of going through your health issues, whether he was starting to sort of have that in his mind and his consciousness and subconsciousness and sort of thinking a bit about, you know, I suppose, you know, lyrically, there are quite a few references to, I don't know, there's a, obviously a bit of a melancholia sometimes. <laughs> Isn't there? And, and lyrics yeah. about the the body broken in the first track, Lincoln Green. So yeah. I just wondered if if he was kind of, I don't know, without thinking about Dark Star by David Bowie, but there was that kind of element of um, a sort of a sort of a bit of a sadness, isn't there? There is a sadness, and there was a there were a couple of tracks in particular that when I was singing them, I was choking up. Although I never ask Bobby what his lyrics are about. And I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would feel comfortable doing so. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I find out through reading through an interview he's done with somebody else that it's, you know, a film that he's watched or, or something like that. Sometimes I think, I think obviously he always does have a, a track or two that's, that's deeply personal. That's, that's kind of his style as well. But he definitely draws on other people's experiences, even if that is, you know, from a film that he's watched, it'll be a nugget of a feeling a sensation and then then build that into into a song yes um, so I never really know and I don't ask on purpose what the songs are about but I make my own interpretation of it it's a bit like when I read poetry that I don't understand <laughs> but I get I still get an emotion from reading it but well, I, I always you know it's it's my own interpretation as opposed to always whether you're looking at a piece of art or, or whatever you know any anything like that you get your own emotion and it is quite interesting sometimes when you listen to people who perhaps have, have heard one of the tracks I mean you know any of them whether it's field mice or this or whatever and they've interpreted it in a way that fits them and and it might be totally different from the idea that that inspired the song yes um, but it's that's that's what makes it so meaningful I think you know is that the lyrics are they're so beautiful and so poignant but they can be interpreted in several different ways and so when somebody's listening to it there's their own life experiences that they're picking up on yes absolutely and also because I it it's I don't know because there's one called is it Perfume Meadows and I can't remember if yeah. he sings or you sing carrion and ache um and each passing day and that and that sort of again you know one can sort of kind of read a lot into those kind of I don't know if you sing ache actually that's the problem yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you know and I think you know and I suppose I go back to that David Bowie album because I sort of realized that he was you know writing recording that at a time when you know he was obviously going to the hospital and surgeon and being told what was what what and thinking god I don't have much time left and there was a certain 
um, yeah, you know, urgency, but at the same time, there's, this, you know, quite an autobiographical quality to it as well. So yeah, it must there's be, a real poignancy, isn't there? There's, there is yeah. there's far too much poignancy um, because, yes, I find it really hard to listen to that album because then sort of soon after that, I also had my health issues, which were quite... yes. Grim as well, and so you're thinking, "Oh my God, I can't! This is just too much." But I kind of yeah. understand what those lyrics meant. So that must have been—it must be strange now hearing that the album after two years when it was recorded. Oh yes, honestly, it was like the longest gestation period ever. It was like giving birth to an elephant. It was like, "Come on!" <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it was at the mixing stage when lockdown happened, and um, and we were unable to to go back into the studio. Uh, Bobby did he discussed doing the mixing remotely but it wasn't what he wanted to do really so so we bided our time and waited and then yeah lockdown kind of well it, yeah you well we all lived through it we know it came and went and came and went but you know a, a sustained period of it was ending yes it did it did drag and, on and to finish it um so absolutely yeah and and what's been quite nice um, for me is that I like it as much now as I did on the day we recorded it. Um, Bobby said to me it was like the the record that he that he always wanted to make and and he felt that it was the record that he'd always wanted to make and he'd made it, which was just a brilliant thing to hear. Yes. Um, because he in particular finds it very hard to listen to his old stuff. he He never listens to the Field Mice, Northern Picture Library. It's, it's gone. He doesn't listen to it. So anybody that ever asks, will the field mice ever reform and play live? No, they will not. <laughs> they can't even listen to the records, let alone play them live, you know. Um, but the fact that that he is proud of it as well means a, a, a real, means a lot to me. Um, I just absolutely, yeah, just thoroughly enjoyed. I loved all the, the nature references, the folk references, the folklore. Um, I mean, you and I have spoken, you know, since our last interview, we've we've spoken about nature and yeah. monk jacks and, and all sorts of oh, things. Yes. Like, de- de- definitely the monk jack, actually. Yes, because yeah. that track called White Upon Your Grave, which is a yeah. it's almost like um, yes, that's quite a title. Again, that has a really strong folk feel, doesn't it, at the beginning? Yes. Yes. Which is um, absolutely which is a nice little touch because it does. Yeah. I, I suppose all those kind of references and all those kind of musical kind of avenues always makes things quite magical. And there is a sort of a sense of old Arcadia, isn't there? Old Albion, England and all that kind of stuff, yeah. which is quite yeah. a romantic kind of quality to it. So when you were recording the album, did you get the lyrics first and then sort of work through them in your mind before going in and, and putting the, the tracks down? Uh, with this album in particular a lot of it was done there and then um you know it was it it was really creating it in the studio so the way that the way that it usually works with with me well there's two there's two or three different ways let's be honest that it works sometimes Bobby has a fully formed song and he has the music and he has the lyrics and he sends it to me in advance as a demo that he's you know done in his bedroom whatever and we all know it's in completely the wrong key for me because he's got much higher voice than I have. So, you know, we, we know there's going to be those those issues. But so occasionally, but I would say it's it, it's not the norm. That's mm-hmm. how it happens. The rest of the time, there's the bare bones and structure of chords and, and lyrics. 
and he will have an idea of the melody because I mean a lot of the time I'm singing backing vocals and I'm doing the harmonies I'm not I don't uh, on this album I do do four lead vocals I think but usually I'm not singing the lead vocals so I go in and we're sat there and I don't know if you've been in a have you been in a recording studio with you know like creating a no, I haven't. <laughs> no. So what happens is, as, as the engineer is like finding the right place, etc., he's playing it over and over and over again, and he's getting the balances right. He's getting. So I'm just listening to the song over and over and over whilst the engineer is doing his thing, and and if I even if I've never heard the song before, there will be a, a counter melody or a harmony right. will will start to form. Until I then say, okay, I, I think I've got something, and I'll go into the little box room that's the that's the singing bit, and 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 give it a go. And sometimes it's like you know, the, then it then it becomes collaborative. So I can get the the yeah, I'm hearing back in the headphones. Oh, how about you try this, or how about you try that? So it's like, yeah, okay. So then we try something else. And on a lot of the tracks, I'm singing four or five vocals. Yeah. So I'll sing the melody, the the counter melody that that comes naturally, and then we'll think about another one that might go in there, and you know, depending on my range, of course, because I have an incredibly low voice for a, for a woman, so I have to I have to work within within those those notes, um, and and it just forms like that, and it's yeah, it's just. Yeah. I mean, it's my favourite thing to do. Yes. Does it? Is it a relief to be recording new material so that rather than than be, having this kind of legacy of being in the band during the sort of late 80s and early 90s, that kind of defines you, and then you think, gosh, that, that was me back then, only 30 years mm-hmm. ago. Is it quite nice to feel like you're sort of moving on and sort of still doing the thing you love? Yes. Yes, it does, and I and I prefer this music to listen to than than the older stuff. Um, but I'm really, really aware that you know you can look on Spotify about how many listeners you get monthly, can't you? You know, yes. and, and the price have like oh, I don't know twenty times the amount of people that Lightning in a Twilight Hour have, even though Lightning in a Twilight Hour is a new album that's just come out and it's had quite a lot of Radio Six play and stuff like that. Um, you know, the the film I still gets fifty thousand listeners a month. <laughs> so it, it's it, in a way. So if I meet somebody new and and the you know it comes up that I was in a band and whatever. I end up saying, oh yes, it was the field mice. But actually, what I'm doing now, I'm much much more proud of. Um, but maybe it's just because I've aged as well. You know, it's like. 51 you know I don't want to be listening to jangle pop all the time um no this is true <laughs> it has its place but actually I I've matured and 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 music for me has a different meaning now I think um so I mean as we've alluded to you know not everybody's gonna have followed my life so they won't know but you know in 2018 I was diagnosed with with breast cancer and 2019 was a a year of treatment and um and being quite poorly my husband was very very unwell at the same time um so I think I spent six months in bed and then he did because he had something else going on yes um and music music became a very um healing thing for me you know so the particular things that I was listening to were 
they just made me feel like I was in a safe place again. You know, so I, it was a very particular genre or, or, or style that I was going for. And in particular, what I listened to over and over was um, an album called Spell Songs. Ooh. And Spell Songs is a um, it's a collection of, of folk songs. It's inspired by um, a book called The Lost Words, um, which was written by a man called Robert McFarlane. And he wrote this book in in response to the children's dictionary removing certain words so acorn and um tawny owl and things mm-hmm. like that they went out of the dictionary in favor of wikipedia um i've just had a thing saying my internet connection is unstable can you hear me okay yes no it's uh, luckily uh, it's been fine i I, I shall keep going (laughs) i'm sorry that that interrupted me but it just came up and i thought just just to make sure you can hear yes um so yeah so so he wrote this book and he beautifully illustrated large book it is and it has a kingfisher in it and it has it has oak trees and it has all these things you know so it was like the the antithesis of the the dictionary that that had removed them and then a wonderful group of folk singers got together and recorded an album called spell songs which again was inspired by this book and i mean i've gone goose pimply even just thinking about it the the Mm. songs are so magical they're so so magical and they just it's like the you know the healing of mother nature put into a record it's absolutely fantastic Yes, God, that sounds fantastic. I will check that out. It's interesting because, yes, I, I suppose during that 80s period and yeah, into the 90s, I did sort of hang out with quite a lot of new agey types, kind of. I suppose they were hippies who were in the age. So there was a lot of spiritual stuff going on. And uh, I do remember there was a particular artist called Lisa Thiel who did the most beautiful songs. And I, I do sort of find myself playing those, especially on my own, because they do have a kind of a magical quality. And when, you know, like I sort of had my health issues in 2016, um, which kind of just kind of hit you sideways because you just have like, oh, my God, I, I you wow. never expect to hear those words, do you, that you have cancer and you think, OK, just just say that again. Um, <laughs> and what happens next? And it is quite frightening. You know, it's the most frightening experience. And you just go, you just have to go through this kind of weird world, don't you, and and trust that hopefully someone people are going to be there for you and it's all gonna you get through the end of it but it is it's quite the process I could imagine yes it does change one quite a lot really doesn't it oh you've absolutely gone now so oh that's fine that's fine yes yeah that's fine point I lost you but I lost you somewhere along the line Sorry well that no I was just gonna I was just saying I'm not sure if you caught that bit um just those in my slightly teen period in the 20s there was a lot of new agey people who were into a lot of mystical stuff which I quite enjoy but then sort of came through it but then sort of picked it up a little bit during that period when I suddenly had a kind of the frightening you know kind of news that I also had cancer in 2016 and it does kind of change you in that kind of sense of I don't know letting go of some things and then sort of concentrating on others and and I think trying to make a bit of a simpler life for oneself rather than being quite so complicated and it it does there is something that happens I think that uh, is quite something but um, it's hard to explain it really isn't it because 
you know, you you, you never you never experience uh, uh, expect to hear those kind of words that you get told once you've had a scan that um, yeah. they've had the results and it's not that good. And you're thinking, what did you just say? Yeah, it's interesting. What I thought was quite interesting when um, do you know Michael White that wrote the book Pop Kiss? Uh, oh yes, yes, Michael. Yeah, so he obviously had some health, some serious health issues a, a, a couple of years ago as well. And and he said to me, the, the last thing on the planet that he would ever want to listen to is folk music in, you know, to make himself feel better. Because he was, he, he had a completely different, I can't even remember what it was he was listening to, but he had a completely different genre of music that made him feel better. So you have to go with 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 whatever your your body is is tuning into, don't you? Really, you know. And and for me, it was it was definitely that. And and it just so happened that Bobby was listening to a lot of folk as well, and was being you know influenced in a similar way. So when we came to record Overwintering, it felt like I was really on the same page. Yes. And did you in your um, younger days? Did you like folk music? Did you sort of listen to the work of you know Nick? Drake, Nick Drake or some of the John Martin work or you know some of the early kind of Joni Mitchell songs I just wondered if if folk was a kind of a genre that you yeah. I know Nick Drake isn't quite folk but you know as a sort oh, of like, no but that's the kind of folk that I do like you know so that, that end of the sort of singer-songwriter folky acoustic stuff is is exactly the the kind of thing that I that I just love um and I think, well, yeah, I was I was reminiscing recently that um, when I first learned to play the guitar, when I was, well, yeah, my first, my dad taught me first. And then when I was a teenager, the main way that I learned music was through the folk club at school. Right. So, <laughs> so it's all, it was all blowing in the wind and, uh, you know, it was... Um, it was the the sort of possibly more obvious folk tracks, etc. But it was a space for me to be able to play the guitar and and sing in a group, which you know is is quite a magical thing in itself. Um, so I think that that did definitely um, it, it's it's just there from from the get go, really. You know that sort of folk music. My my dad brought me up on that that kind of thing as well, and right. then. Um, when I did my degree, I did uh, a dissertation on the politics of um, the politics of pop music between '65 and '80, and right. there was a lot of there was a lot of folk in there. You know, a lot of folk music in there. Yes. Um, so you know, because um, I mean, again, obviously talking about Dylan, but. Um, it, it it just was the way that that people were communicating their feelings. Um, Did you ever go through an incredible string string band phase? Did you ever manage to sort of crack the incredible string band? No, that I have not done. No, I haven't either. I even did an interview with Rose from the band and she was lovely, but I still find the albums just too much for me. That's just too out there, whereas I suppose I need something a little bit easier and less hmm. less challenging, really. But I think um, what I... What I recognise is that I like a strong melody, I like a good harmony, um, and and I like um, guitar, piano, strings. You know, I mean, I, I like music. 
uh, I don't know, maybe it sounds a bit a bit too um, middle of the road, but I like I do like music that has a recognizable, comfortable place for me, you mm-hmm. know, of, of melody and harmony and harmonics and so on. Um, I really admire people, really, really admire people who can listen to avant-garde, especially if it's like avant-garde opera or classical or something, and they can understand it and they can it can mean something to them. Whereas it just feels like an assault on the eardrums to me. And I wish I feel like I feel like I haven't quite got the musicality that can allow me to understand that those complexities of, of music like that. Yes, well, I, I know. I, I, I tried to subscribe to The Wire magazine once to try and make myself, you know, more cultured and, you know, discover more <laughs> music. But it was so, you know, it was just too complicated. And it is too, like, I th- I'm sure the people making it are loving it. I hope so. But I just, yeah. could, I just couldn't sort of listen to it on my own. It's a bit like one of those... I suppose when I was younger, there were some albums you wanted to like just because it felt important, like, I don't know, Track Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart. But I wouldn't go home and listen to it on my own. The same with the Crass record, I wouldn't want to listen to. But then I heard this guy, Jeffrey Lewis, do 12 acoustic songs of Crass, and actually they're quite nice. But then, you know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. If you can can take it down to an acoustic, an an acoustic song with a with a melody and a simple, a simple arrangement. Um, I think that's quite often the case, to be honest. Yes, and, but... and there are there are records that I know are important. I know they're culturally important and and really significant. But I again wouldn't listen to them on my own, out of my own choice. Yes, but I can appreciate how important they've been, and 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 yeah, and and how other people can really hear the magic in them. Definitely. But when did you ever go through? Because uh, this is I, I went through this phase once, um, and I still love them. Is the Carpenters actually the, the, oh, the songs? <laughs> I was brought up on the Carpenters. My dad had that that brown, oh, brown old album, the nineteen seventy whatever to seventy whatever. Um, yeah, that was the, probably the first record I remember listening to, actually, and. I mean, Karen Carpenter's voice, you you just, you can't, you can't find another voice that is as pure as that. It's yes. it's so special. And as a small child, I didn't realise this the sadness behind those songs. As I got older, you know, they sounded more and more tragic the more, the more and more I listened to them. But oh my goodness, just yeah, without without a shadow of a doubt, the Carpenters was was one of my earliest influences yeah because um, it was interesting because I didn't realize that as well but I'd sing along to these songs as a sort of a young little boy thinking god these yeah. are so happy it's uh, lovely songs but then you know years later I got into Joy Division and the Smiths and I went oh no wonder listen to those lyrics I say goodbye to love no one seems yeah. to care if I should live or die and you're thinking oh yeah well, don't it- just make me go ghost pimply again <laughs> And I was like singing along with these, you know, when I was very young and I was thinking, God, they are quite something, aren't they? You know, every song is about, you know, sadness and like almost but not quite. It was like a 1950s kind of black and white, you know, taste of honey, isn't it? It's just so tragic, you know, and they are beautiful. And and I know there was that compilation that came out in the early 90s of bands like Sonic Youth and the Cranberries did the cover covers of, of the carpenters and they're pretty they're pretty amazing and, and there are mm. some great versions on there but I just think they're just you know when you were just talking about your younger days and folk and I know the carpenters 
got that image but at the same time you know you couldn't help but hear the lyrics and the kind of the you know the cleanness of her vocals and the production Absolutely. which does Absolutely. have a huge influence so when you when you were singing and playing guitar did you ever think oh music's going to be something that's going to be this kind of like my you know like rock or your foundation through your kind of life I've probably gone in and out of different different phases of that. Um, I I was a musical child, you know. It was it was something that, like you know, like only one person got to play the bass recorder in primary school, and it was me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is my claim to fame. Even now, I got to play the bass recorder that belonged to Miss Millington. Um, you know, so I was a musical child and it was uh, it was always really important. Um, singing was a big part of my family, particularly my, my father, who had the most beautiful Welsh voice. Um, right. And he sung in Welsh male voice choirs and slightly uh, less nice, the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, which I never quite <laughs> got my head around. Um, and uh but he just had a he had a beautiful voice so music was always in the house and it's always been I cannot imagine a world growing up in a world without without that um and I know it's not it, it surprises me that it isn't in every household but it isn't some people never have music on they have no. talk radio on all the time and they never play music so you know you take it for granted really I think when it's there all the time yes Did absolutely I ever want to as a career, probably not. In fact, actually, I think Karen Carpenter, when I watched the Karen Carpenter story when I was about 17 or 18, and I remember saying to my mum, I, I never want to be a famous singer from what she went through, never. So, you know, but also there's always been this thing of like, you know, I, I, I love it when the records get played on the radio. I love it when people listen, but I just hated playing live. And that was always a, a, a really bad stepping, a really bad barrier, you know, to, that I couldn't step over really. Yes. Um, but, but music, uh, so there was a time when I wasn't really recording, but um, I got quite heavily into the Cuban dance scene, um, doing a lot of salsa, doing a lot of, you know, um, Cuban folk dance and and whatever um and the other thing that's been this is oh gosh maybe I shouldn't have drunk this carver I'm being very <laughs> honest here but the other thing was um musical theatre has been a bit of a constant throughout my life as well now I've not got the voice for musical theatre personally I have I have no vibrato and I've got no power so I'm never I'm never going to be on the stage singing those songs but um again you know the other records in my dad's collection were um there was South Pacific and uh you know West Side Story and just just basically every musical you could think of was in his LP collection so I was brought up on that and that was really again the melodies the harmonies there are there are certain songs that I don't care what the lyrics are but the changing key can make me well up you know it, it, it's so powerful yes and, and now I've got a 10 year old who bless him is absolutely um so 
so obsessed by musical theatre um, and he's singing all the time and it's wonderful. It's absolutely magical. So I go along to his classes in Chaperone there just so I can hear all the wonderful songs all the time. God. So on the musical theatre front, which I do also love intensely, and I love the sort of the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Sid Charisse kind of dance oh, stuff. Um, all those classics, as well as kind of, you know, quite sort of modernish, I suppose, musical theatre. Coming up to, I got very emotional. I went to see, is it Bat Out of Hell, the, the music of Meatloaf? Done, you know, yeah. done in a, as a musical on the on sort of stage, and we went to London to see it twice because it was so well done. So I find the whole kind of way of presenting music like that quite emotional, actually. But like you said, it only requires a change of key or change of tempo, and and just a, a great story like The Great Gatsby or something like that, and one's just like in floods of tears as well as happiness. So it's it's yeah. all quite good. So did that give you the confidence in a musical theatre to to sort of act in a way no (laughs) I'm not I'm I don't think I could ever perform in musical theatre it would if I had a magic wand to give myself different talents it would be that I could do that but I can't so I'm very much a not a participant of musical theatre I I watch it and I and I am just absolutely in awe of the people who can perform it um, yes you know and you know my my niece has just finished a, a degree in musical theatre and I mean god I could just sit and listen to her from dawn till dusk would be amazing but um can I just ask by the way are the seagulls too loud no no I haven't I can't hear the seagulls <laughs> but it's a nice touch actually no no the, the, sea, the seagulls haven't broken through actually when you it's, when it's you a hit... bit of a balmy night so I've got the door open but the seagulls are, are causing a riot out there so well, I have to say we had the most amazing rainbow earlier which you know because it's been sort of this amazing sun then a bit of rain yes. and then so it has been some spectacular cloud. Did you, when you were sort of hitting that kind of through your late teen period, did you start getting obsessed with the kind of the, I suppose it was the 80s. Was that a period where you were starting to go to gigs and buy albums and sort of enjoy that side of life? Yeah, so in the late 80s, I was in my late teens. Um, and it was in sixth form that I first uh, came across indie, if you like. Um and again, what what attracted me to it was the simplicity, the melodies, the, the you know, and, and and also being able to to join in, you know. Yes, <laughs> I could actually be a participant of this because it was it was quite homegrown. It was uh, it was quite DIY in that post punk way, really, wasn't it? Um, Very, yes, absolutely. So I did, yeah. So I did start to go to gigs. I also joined the Field Mice in nineteen ninety. Uh, was it nineteen ninety? Yes. I joined them in 1990. So in the in the couple of years leading up to that, I mean, I, I was also, I was a student in Manchester, which was at the time of uh, Manchester. Yes. You know, so it was it music in Manchester at that point. It was the most amazing time. It was, it was incredible. And, um, and so the student, uh, you know, the club nights and whatever were, were just absolutely fantastic. The Hacienda was an amazing place to go to. And and it was for me really really refreshing to be away from those kind of power ballads that were that were really in the you know they were in the charts um, 
which I couldn't relate to, interestingly, because you'd think musical theatre and power ballads sort of go hand in hand, but there's something different. There's something there's something different about about those those power ballads that I just, just couldn't I couldn't <laughs> identify with them at all. Um, so I was quite glad to get away from those and to start listening to some, you know, some more um, grassroots music, really, if you like, un- unproduced or, yes. or less produced. So had you sort of had you sort of picked up that, and you probably did, the world of the Smiths? Was that one of the reasons you went to Manchester, by the way? No, I, I lived in South Manchester, so I was already right. there. You were there already, already. so you experienced the vibe of Manchester and the ever-changing experience. Right, so there you go. Did did you ever go to the Lads Club and get a photograph taken outside the the famous door? Where No, I I don't think I did. (laughs) I don't think I did. But, yeah, I grew up in a a little uh, town halfway between Stockport and Macclesfield, And, um, and so it was near enough to be able to get to Manchester quite easily. And so from the age of about 16, I was going into to town to to gigs and stuff, you know, the wedding present, that's that that sort of thing. Yes. That's, so did you were you a bit surprised that you suddenly one minute thinking, my God, I'm now in a band. This how did this kind of happen? Oh, good grief, yes. Absolutely. I mean, I so it was like I mean, when I was at school in sixth form, there were four of us who really liked Sarah Records and we really liked, you know, the, that sort of C86 sound and so on. And um, and one, Chris, my friend Chris, he wrote some songs, he wrote some lyrics and and we put some melodies to it. But I mean, we, we were talking like, you know, they were using the guitar case as a drum. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was as DIY as you can possibly get, really. Excellent. Um, and we were called the Purple Tulips. So this was this, I hesitate to even say it was a band. It was literally, we were just messing about for, you know, a few times. And, but we recorded some of this stuff and goodness knows how, but it got out. And there is one track, which is on some compilation cassette somewhere. Um, from that, that was picked up by Claire of Sarah Records, who wrote about it in the fanzine. Blimey. And so from there, we started to start, we started getting letters and things from people who'd listened to the Purple Chillips, which was a bit of a joke, really, because we really weren't a proper band, although we loved me, we all loved music. That was our, that was the reason that we were friends, the four of us. Um, anyway, there was a bit of a moment of madness. I was feeling very trapped and, you know, I still lived at home when I was at, at Polytechnic, Manchester Poly. So I, I was just feeling like I just needed to do something different. Mm-hmm. And my friend Chris was going to see the Field Mice play live. And one of the Purple Tulips uh, letters that we'd had was somebody saying, "Do you know the Field Mice are looking for a female singer?" Which I was like, "Oh, how ridiculous!" Put it in the back of my mind. But then when I heard Chris was going to go and see them live, I said, "Give them a tape. Give them a tape and tell them <laughs> that I'm interested." I mean, I don't know what made me think I had the confidence to do that. You know, that anyway, but he did. And um, I got a lovely letter back from Bobby saying, we'd really like you to join the band. Oh, and by the way, we're going to Japan next month if you want to join us. Blimey, that was that was um, sliding doors, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Before sunrise and all that. It was (laughs) it was it was incredible. And. So, uh, you know, I was 19 
I thought I was grown up. But of course, when you look back at 19 year olds now, you think, what on earth was I thinking? And off, you know, I, off I went to London, met them all was all fine they came met my parents and my parents weren't too worried that I was going off with all these 25 year old boys Mm. um and uh and and that's so it was catapulted definitely because they already of course they'd done all the hard work they'd already had a certain amount of time doing you know doing the rounds playing the gigs doing the support etc and Mark and I joined at a time when we were suddenly selling out the venue in New Cross, you know, a couple of thousand people um, without really trying, you know. Did it, was so, it quite nice to join the band with Mark, you know, the, the feel that you were yeah. had a bit of like, oh, thank God it's... Because I know with Stevie Nicks, she often said that she still... <laughs> she, always felt, yeah, <laughs> she always felt, even right up to, you know, quite recently, I, she always felt like they were, st- you know, she was still kind of a, the new person in the band. But, you know, with her and Lindsay, I just wondered if, because of the history of the Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac obviously that's quite a big history because there was the Peter Green period. But there is kind of coming into a scene which is already established and especially when you're young it can feel a little bit strange can't it yeah without a doubt and I I think there was a bit of imposter syndrome going on there um apart from anything you know Michael and Bobby they were best friends from school you know and they'd created this band and then I came in not only did I come in and join the band but I kind of well you know, Bobby and I became a couple. So so that kind of threw all the dynamics into turmoil, really, because it had been Bobby and Michael with Harvey joining. And then it was suddenly Bobby and me. And, you know, it was just very, very complex. And it never meant, and I never intended for it to be like that. I never intended to break up any, you know, friendship or, or whatever. And and obviously, it, it stood the test of time. They are still best friends, so I don't need to really worry about it long term. But I did kind of, I think I did sort of uh, mess things up a little bit, as well as as well as you know, adding to the to the band. I don't so. think anyone. Yes, when when one's in the moment, you can never. It's just too much, isn't it? It's just yeah. a whirlpool of um, exciting kind of decision making, and everything's so intense. So you know, oh, intense is the word, without a doubt. <laughs> so, did you ever get to finish your degree? Oh, I did finish my degree. Um, I didn't really experience student life very much in my second and third years because every Friday at twelve o'clock, I would get the uh, National Express coach down to Victoria in London. <laughs> <laughs> and and then either we'd be doing a gig or we'd be doing a rehearsal or whatever. Um, so I didn't spend an awful lot of time in Manchester doing studenty things. Yes. Tricky. And then unfortunately, um, in my final year, well, as I said, I've never really liked playing live. And then it all went horribly, horribly wrong. And I started getting stage fright to the point that I was, you know, f- f- really physically ill beforehand. And we did a tour and I only got on stage half the time. And um, yeah, I just knew it just, you know, Harvey just turned around to me at one point and said, you don't have to do this, you know. And I thought, no, I don't. And I, I really don't think I can. So I was I was really ready to to sort of throw in the towel at that point because it was just making me very, very poorly. Um, 
what was I talking about? What yes, I, I suppose finishing your degree. <laughs> they were actually finishing interesting enough. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so at the same time, I was doing my finals. So I, uh, all I can think is that it was just everything all at once. You know, when you're touring in a band like the Field Mice, you know, you're doing everything on a shoestring. You're sleeping for three hours a night. You're sleeping in really crud motels. You're not eating properly. You're not, you know, and and we this French tour that we did at, at the end of which I became quite poorly. I mean, it was just crazy. We were going from like Paris to Toulouse to Rouen to Paris to, you know, to Grenoble to Paris. To, it was just insane. It was like, you know, yeah, you would never, ever plan a holiday like, well, this wasn't a holiday, obviously, but it was just so, so difficult. And I think I was so tired. And there were tensions rising in the band, I think, you know, as from what I was saying before about relationships and so on. And and I was doing my finals or trying to do my finals at the same time. And I think it just, yeah, it was uh, what I call the magic porridge pot. Yeah, magic porridge pot. <laughs> I, I had a book when I was little about this magic porridge pot that kept producing porridge and it felt a bit like that, you know, it just over... Yeah, overwhelmed but, me. But when you look back at that, your your sort of nineteen year old self, do you sort of do you feel proud of what you did and managed to navigate? Because that's still you know a lot to yeah. cope with. I do now, but there were a couple of decades when I didn't. There were there was a whole decade when I regretted ever ever being involved, and then another decade where I was like, Ooh, maybe life would have been better if I hadn't have done that. But now I'm really proud. I, I'm really, it's it's funny, I've kind of full, come full circle. Yeah, um, that's that's good, isn't it? That's, yeah, you know, yeah. That's a good thing. I don't, I don't see it as something to regret. For, for a while I saw it as something to regret because the ramifications of, of the mental illness that I ended up with by the time that I, take, I was taking my degree and you know and, and the band had just split at that point Th- that went on for years and years I mean I, there was a I, I didn't go home to Manchester to see my my family for three years or so because I was so unable to leave the house and get on a train I mean mm. and now you see now to me that sounds ludicrous and to everybody else around me it probably sounded ludicrous at the time but uh, that's how I felt. It felt it felt like if I got on that train, I wouldn't survive the journey. Not because there'd be a train crash, but just because it would be like being underwater and not being able to breathe. Mm. Sorry, I'm being very candid here. Well, yes, yeah, um, so, no, that's fine. I know, mean, was, was it's it, hard to explain. Well, yes, but I just wondered when you said that, whether you just actually were feeling kind of quite suicidal during that period as well. Um, I would say not no I think I think there was a there was a shred of just wanting to hang on although I, my sister did admit to me fairly recently that she she was frightened that that I was having suicidal thoughts don't think so but I just wanted to be in a um a white room with I wanted to, I wanted sensory deprivation I now realize which right. I still love. I still love when I go in a flotation tank or I go in the sea or whatever. It is that sensory depth. I love that. You know, that that is what I need to rebalance everything. 
Yes. Do you so. did you have a period where noise, you know, you just, you know, too many people having conversations, did that sort of also affect you, you know, just having, you know, that stimulation, I suppose as well. No, I don't think that I don't think that in particular was an issue. Um my my illness was really focused around the fact that um I've I'd been sick so many times around the world. Sorry, it's it's not very nice to, you know to to listen to. I'm sorry. But and I felt like like that could happen at any at any point, whether I got on a bus or a train or or was walking down the street. I just felt like at any moment I could be sick. And the more crowded you are, the more that was distressing um, for me. You know, the more crowded I was mm. because I just felt like I couldn't get to a safe place where, which would be a private place, you know, a bit. So that yeah, it was. So it it turned into agoraphobia um, over a period of about six months, probably, and wow. then. That, I, it took me about 10 years to fully recover but I yeah. am fully recovered fully fully recovered now was there a, did you sort of feel did you have to do something or did time just kind of do you know sort of have a healing process I just wondered if there was anything you know yeah. during the 90s that you had to work on and you suddenly felt oh something's different I didn't find anything that worked um the best thing that that helped me was probably hypnotherapy self you know self hypnosis um I never went to have hypnotherapy with a person but I got some personalized tapes done Mm. and it's now that's um I don't do hypnotherapy now but I did particularly through um the year of illness and then through through COVID as well was I I do quite a lot of mindfulness and that's a similar sort of thing you know it's that similar sort of just again it's almost sensory deprivation but you're creating yourself you know you're just removing all the distractions so that you can sit calmly yes and breathe and breathe so when did you suddenly have a, a feeling that you wanted to sing again you know and you were kind of able to sort of you know take that kind of next step because obviously there was a huge space where you weren't you know doing so much music I I I never completely stopped recording um in terms of you know well I say never there were sometimes three years between records or whatever but quite often apart from I think the first um Trembling Blue Stars album which uh was about me rather than <laughs> with me <laughs> um so uh, there was a there was a period of time yes when I when I didn't record but no going going back into Ian's studio we've always recorded with Ian and going back into his studio just feels like a very safe place a very good place um yes. it's completely different from playing live and the anxieties of that you know the, the thing with playing live is you get it right or you get it wrong on stage it's live you have one chance if if there's a journalist in the audience then there's even more pressure I mean we were we were playing I'm sure it's changed now because I'm talking 30 years ago but we were playing venues where you couldn't hear yourself the monitors were rubbish as I said before I've not got a very powerful voice so to all intents and purposes couldn't hear what I was singing and just the whole thing was oh 
Yes, no, I, I spoke to quite a few people who, who I was, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was slightly surprised when they just said they could never get on stage again. And no. they just they just got to that point where they were having to, they just was being sick and having to drink quite a lot and then doing Absolutely. it and, and just not enjoying it. But they would love to, you know, after doing various other things, would love to play music again. But it's kind of, it's a kind of a weird process, isn't it? You know, why anybody almost puts themselves through this. Because oh, kind of, yeah. as a as a fan, you think, God, this must be amazing. This is this is like envy. And then you think, my God, there's there's so much, you know, process. You know, so much creating, such a lot of stuff. Then process out of it. Because I do remember it was Robert Plant when you know Led Zeppelin finished, and he and it was like you know the band had finished, John Bonham had died, you know, it all finished. And he was said that was the the end of innocence. You know, nothing was gonna. You know, it was just like. But up to then, it was all. <laughs> And it was like, and it was like, God, what do I do next? And then other, you know, people who, you know, I spoke to in bands have just spent a year walking around the streets wondering, I don't know what I'm actually <laughs> going to do. Because it's it's like, you know, and they were having some sort of breakdown. You know, it was like literally just like, I've just done this all my life and now I'm 30 with nothing, no money, yeah, but, nothing. And it's but quite... we never did it. We never did it full time, did we? You know, we've. I mean, apart from... Bobby himself um you know we we've never done it full-time we were all we all had other jobs you know Mark worked in the job center I was working at the body shop and HMV and you know we all had we all had other jobs and um and and obviously have other jobs now you know it's like <laughs> I don't think I could live on my 28 pound 72 a year that I know this is this is true <laughs> So on, on the on your musical journey, did the trembling blue stars was that kind of an enjoyable kind of moment that you had, or was that just a bit strange? If I'm really honest, there was a there was a strange period of time. Obviously, you know, Bobby and I, I mean, our relationship is pretty much documented in the records. So you know, go listen if you're interested. Um, but. Uh, there was a period of time when we had split up and it was very, very traumatic for both of us. I think we both felt like we'd been left as half a person at that point. Um, I carried on seeing him partly because his family were my family, you know, so that was that. And and also we, we shared the dog, you know, um, we had shared custody, so oh God. and we <laughs> so and, and I, I grew up on Lassie films. That would have been heartbreaking. Oh well, with yeah, hundred percent on Lassie. That that's it, you know. So we we, you know, there was a period of time when we forced to we forced ourselves to see each other, and and it, it was incredibly painful, like really really painful. I don't even want to remember it to be honest. Mm. Um. And his way of his way of expressing that was through writing songs. So, as I said, you know, the first Trembling Blue Stars album. I mean, I can't really listen to it. It's 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 too close to the bone for me. Um, and gradually, he started. The, the songs became less less about us and more about. Well, who knows? As I said, I never mm. ask. You know, I never ask. I can read into them what I want or not, but I never ask. And so I gradually started to to get back into the studio with him. And um, and I think, you know, the, the process of creating creating music is 
well as I've said before it's very therapeutic really isn't it and and when we're when we're in the studio we're a team working for a a joint thing you know it's is it it's not quite so intense about the relationship or it yes. wasn't so, so was, does was that make it kind sense? Of, yes it does <laughs> well, was it a relief then that the trembling blue got a got sort of parked and then lightning in a twilight hour well, was born I mean what happened really was the very wonderful Beth Arcy came along um you know so and it I mean which was peculiar at first because when she, when they first did the first few live gigs you know she was singing the parts that I'd recorded in in the studio that's you know but it was great it was just absolutely great that I didn't feel like I was holding them back by saying no I'm never going to play live Um, and then uh Bobby and Beth have become a, a, a couple they've been together for many many years now and um so it wasn't so much a relief of that it was just a relief we both moved on you know I mean I I got married in 2005 he's moved you know we we've both moved on but we've we've moved into a, a new phase of a relationship where we are very very good friends and and that is not awkward it's it's just just great it's it's absolutely great yes um, so I don't know I don't think that it was a relief that Trembling Blue Stars finished because by the time we got to the later records of Trembling Blue Stars, it was it was nothing about our relationship anymore at all. So um, yes, but then that was fine. yes, so then. he just needed a break from he needed a break from music for a while, so he took a break and then he came back as lightning in a twilight hour. So and that was it. And the first album you recorded on on with that combo was is this the the fragments of a former moon? Was that the the first time you recorded? Yes, I did. I I sung on a on a couple of tracks on that. Yeah. And did that yeah. feel? This was two thousand fifteen. Did that feel like a a nice? Were you in a good place at that stage? Yeah, I was. I really enjoyed it. It was. It was. A couple of days, I took a couple of days off work and I went into the studio and I really enjoyed it. But somehow the latest album got me in a different way. It really, really got me. And whether or not that's because it was at the end of my year of treatment for for being poorly. um, And uh, yeah, whether it was at the end, I don't know what there was. There is some something about overwintering which uh, is very will always be very significant to me. I think. Yes, well, and I have to say the the artwork is is absolutely beautiful as well, and it's oh, isn't um, it gorgeous? The David Toop, yes, it's absolutely beautiful, and that was yes, Beth. Um, I I don't know the story behind it, but Beth managed to get an original an, an original print from him. Um, he's a he's a wonderful artist, so I think that that's absolutely fantastic. It's beautiful, though, isn't it? It's it is. It is. You know, and I think the whole album works fantastically well. And mm-hmm. I'm sure people will discover. You know, I mean, like you were saying about the whole, because it's kind of. I'm always a bit curious with that Spotify. You know, you see how many <laughs> yeah. people are listening to stuff, and you think, wow. And I think there's a lot of young kids. Are you know, I've noticed 
seeing various bits and pieces from people. They really love kind of, and I suppose I was the same when I was younger, you know, going back to a different decade or different period and sort of discovering stuff. And I think having something that's slightly obscure so it's not too mainstream, you know, mm. you know, is is kind of very appealing. But then I'm sure people then follow artists and and members of the band to their next creation and the, the next creation. So I think it will be a slow I'm sure it'll be kind of one of those ones that people will keep on discovering it. And, you know, and it's it's also the thing that, you know, when you change your name, as as Bobby has, you know, I suppose some people might just not be able to follow it that quickly and go, oh, no, okay, no, I didn't realise right. that's where you were at. So that's they, right. So but it was a, interesting. There, were, there was um, a, uh, a conversation going on on Facebook between a couple of, I suppose, Field Mice fans. I don't know. It was on the... Sarah Records page and they were they were discussing the Lightning and the Twilight Hour album and they were they were sort of commenting on the maturity of its sound and how whether whether or not that meant that we'd lost the youthful passion or the youthful um I don't know there was there was something they were wondering whether there was something missing because it has a more mature sound so I don't know whether the young kids of today would actually be listening to lightning in a twilight hour um I'm not sure because maybe it does sound too mature but maybe that's not a problem (laughs) yes well I think you have to make you know you do have to sort of make those kind of decisions or those kind of steps are we really gonna still sound like um, I mean, no offense about C86, but are we really going to sound like the C86 band still? No. You know, that that would be a bit weird, really, it, don't you think? Oh God, it would be it would be just weird. Yeah. And I kind of agree with that um when you were saying about wanting to play your old material or even listen to it. And and with a lot of people, I know Rob Lloyd from the Nightingales, you know, he would only play the new albums for various reasons. A you know, he can relate to them. And B, he doesn't want to try and remember how to play songs from 30 <laughs> or 40 years ago. It just doesn't interest yeah. him. So he's like, you know, come and see us, but I'm just going to play this new stuff. And yeah. it's not a greatest hits tour. And I'm not playing no, stadiums. No. So you're not paid no. hundreds of pounds to hear me do my famous songs. And I think, yeah, I mean, I can completely understand why some artists just want to create but not sort of keep dragging this behind absolutely absolutely and and you know I I um when I go and see I keep saying I'm going to go see new bands and then I don't I end up seeing bands that I first saw in 1991 or something but you know you go and see them and and there's there's loads of people my age there mostly male I have to say um but you know there are loads of people my age there and the biggest cheers are for the old songs and I just think oh I, I feel so much for the guys on stage or the you know the women on stage because I'm like you know what they're creating new stuff all the time and it's just as important to them as the old stuff and yet what everybody wants to hear is the old things from when they were 20 years old and they can sing along and uh yeah it always makes me it makes me feel slightly uncomfortable that the new stuff is not celebrated in the same way as the old but this you know we're we're all susceptible to nostalgia aren't we yes it's it's, it's, it's a bit tricky isn't it it's a, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I have a love-hate relationship with it he says mm-hmm. obsessed with the it, well it was interesting because I did an interview with Martin Carr who was in the Boo Radleys and he did this amazing album in 2017 a solo one you know and it was like did 
him during his process of sort of basically having a, a a breakdown and then sort of you know recording it and then sort of coming through the other side and when you listen to it it's an amazing album but again you know people aren't going to particularly want to hear that out album live i want to hear it i'm going to go and listen to that later <laughs> yes that do really really it up was, my street to be it honest. was kind of inspired from you know david bowie and you know that how yeah. that affected him and the work of uh, Francis Bacon as well, her painting. So it was just a fascinating right. story that he had. And um, and I, as you said, you know, a creative person and Bowie's that, per, you know, one of the people who his last album, when I first heard it before he died, it was like, oh, this is a bit strange, you know, this jazz band. And then it all makes perfect sense and the lyrics all makes a perfect sense. And, you know, you've got to... Yeah, you got to embrace that. And I did I did remember seeing Lloyd Cole doing a solo show and he was a bit embarrassed singing some of those songs that he wrote when he was 18. Because frankly, as he said, you're not going to be up making love all night when you're in your 50s. <laughs> <laughs> you might be shuffling to the toilet if you're a man a few times. Very, very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but oh uh, yes, yeah, so you're just going to the toilet quite a few more times than one remember. But you know, it's a bit like you know, there is, there, I think there is something quite dignified about making new music, which is kind of representing the person as they are now rather than trying to somehow relieve it. And I think it's different for the Rolling Stones who are doing stadium kicks, by the way. You know, I think that's a bit of a different, that's kind of entertainment on another scale, isn't it? But for, for everyone else, it's like, come on, you know, let's, yeah. let's be real. Yeah, absolutely. We're, absolutely. All, we're all embracing old age with great enthusiasm, as as we do, you know. And, and just briefly, because it's kind of always interesting, these things. When you embraced your dance world, you know, the the was it flamenco you did? Oh no, it was salsa. They were salsa and salsa and Cuban rumba um and, and Cuban folkloric dance. Yeah. Was that a time when you were just looking for some other outlet, a creative outlet, which wasn't music and singing? Oh well it I mean obviously it was still music. You know, some of I think that was what I loved so much about um certainly once you get past beginner level, you know, the complexities of the Cuban rhythms and the influences, you know, you, you've got such a, a mix in Cuba of, you know, from, from Spanish to African to, it's absolutely just an absolute melting pot of creativity. It's wonderful. Mm. And, um, and it, it was, a it was music that, Again, you know, I always went for the, the tracks that had the melody, whatever, but the complexities of those rhythms were, they just, it unlocks the part of your brain that you don't use in a day-to-day, you know? Mm. But then whether it's a key change in in Come From Away, the musical, or whether it's whether it's a Cuban track, there's it, it's just like this key unlocks something in the brain and you feel wonderful. And um, so I did salsa for... 18 years or so and at the point that I had my cancer diagnosis and my my operation which is when I stopped dancing I was I was teaching regularly I was I was teaching beginners salsa at that point um and yeah it was it, it was another creative outlet yes absolutely yes. but it wasn't it it was just a, another genre of music that that I could identify with that, yeah. God, that's amazing. So look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. I mean, I know it's a bit of a corny question, but if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out in this interesting and fascinating world that we have, 
um, with so many challenges and opportunities. Is there anything you would have thought, oh, yes, I would have just told them that or given them this little word, even if they'd ignored me, I would have just been tempted? <laughs> um, maybe don't take yourself so seriously. You know, just enjoy it for what it is. It's it's music. Um, you're never going to find or you're, you're barely going to ever come across anybody in your whole life that's ever heard of the band. So just enjoy it and stop worrying about what people think. Yes, I know. Well, that's that's a very good one. Yeah, so learning not to be so self-conscious is quite amazing and embracing embracing those trips and falls. And Yeah, don't wait until you're 50 to go in the studio and enjoy it. Really, really enjoy it. Yes. <laughs> because you're not worried about making a mistake in front of somebody. You know? and, does, and with the, the album, obviously, that's just come out. I mean, is there sort of hope and plan for sort of new material next year or probably... <gasps> Oh, well, that's not up to me, you see. That's that's up to the maestro. That's whether or not Bobby's got, got anything. Um, now that he's made the album that he always wants to make, is there anything left in there? Yes. I, I hope, I really hope that he is writing again. Um, he doesn't find it the easiest process. It's it's quite torturous for him sometimes to, to write. Um, but I really hope he's writing again because... I can't wait to get back in and do the next record after overwintering. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to um, playing it a lot more times because I really loved it and I thought it was just really special. So thank you ever so much for uh, for that, making that so much make some music. Thinking. And it's great to, um, yes, I do, I do. I've got a quite a nice folk side, so um, I do enjoy all that kind of Romantic melancholia, let's face it, what, what a great combination to have in life. <laughs> anyway, look, you must go, but thank you again for your time. And um, I'll keep you. in touch. And I'll, um, lovely to talk to you. Yes, lovely to see you. And it's great. And take care. All the best for the future. Bye-bye, Bye-bye there. Take care. Bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is just how you end a conversation in a very groovy, professional way. I don't know. I could edit it out, but it kind of makes me cringe and that makes me laugh. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Anne-Marie for giving me the time for that, talking about lightning in a, t- in a twilight hour over wintering. Check it out, buy it. It will change your life and hopefully more music soon. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. This is David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. If it's positive and groovy, good. If it's not, then don't bother. Also, all these have been archived Yes, lucky you. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes iTunes, and Podbean. That's it. That's it. That's the end. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.